here we go. Hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam is uh, about to crank it up here. See, I told you. I know my music. Uh, Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. If you're just now coming in, make yourself at home. If you're already here, just put your feet up, lean back. we got another big hour, and uh, we're going to kick it off right now. Um, Okay, let's look at this article in Christianity Today, which is... Again, let me go back and give you the particulars. It was written by Kirsten Sanders, who achieved her Ph.D. from Emory University. She's a theologian and the founder of Kinesi Theology Collective, which, if you go look at it, it's just a lot of opportunities to have theological conversations, guidelines for for doing theology. You can even take classes on on theology. Uh, Couldn't find anything just right up front that was glaringly wrong, but it would take a long time to go through. It's pretty extensive. Um, all right, this this article, the title of it is Why Church? And then she follows that up by saying, is the wrong question. And so just to kind of set the stage here, I'm going to read some of the highlighted portions here that I've made. Perhaps it's unfair to call the usual debates about cosmology, theodicy, and miracles the wrong questions. Cosmology, way of definition, is a discussion about the origins of the universe. Theodicy is the question of if God is good, if he's all-powerful, if he's all-knowing, then why does evil exist? That's a big question that is debated theologically in Christian circles. And it's also a question that's used to undermine Christianity, often by skeptics. And then miracles, of course, is, you know, can we verify miracles? What is a miracle? Why? Of all the questions, that's the one that I just find interesting that anybody has a problem with. I mean, if you, you have to go back and challenge the nature of God to question miracles, because if God is who Christians say he is, then miracles should be expected. A miraculous event is an intervening act of God that suspends the normal understanding of physics and the laws of nature and substitutes something that is unexpected. I mean, that's a miracle. That's a really poor definition, but— I I thought it was quite good, actually. Okay, well, that's off the top of my head. But but in any case, if if you believe in God, then you would expect that God would perform miracles from time to time— according to his will, to advance his purpose, to bless. Um, So I I find that one the most unusual question. But it is a question that people often debate. So insofar as that they are asking good faith, these questions can generate insight, but they often encourage humans to continue to ask and answer human questions about God. Now that's a great statement. Theology should not be trying to find, to get human curiosity satisfied about the nature of God. It should be, we should be asking questions about, about God, about, you know, th- those questions shouldn't be, well, I'm curious about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. I mean, those kind of ridiculous statements. They should be rooted and grounded in knowing the nature of God finding out what God says about himself, the, the study of God, that is, rather than our—we it, hum, tend to human-focus everything, and our questions should be God-focused. That's according 
to the author here. That is, theology means nothing other than acquainting oneself through Scripture and the worship of the church with the God who can only be known through a glass darkly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So worship, Scripture, the church is about knowing about God. And as we know about God and know God, then some of the answers, not all of them, because again, we are looking through a glass darkly in our current existence here, uh, some of our questions, but not all of them, can be answered. But only as we seek God himself, not beginning the discussion with an answer to the questions. So at the end of the book of John, the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples. They've returned to the Sea of Tiberias to take up fishing. This fact is a point is poignant in itself. They were once fishermen who were called away from their profession to follow the Lord, the one who would save Israel. They followed him, forsaking their livelihood in the meantime, and this faith, faithfulness seemed to end at the death of the one they loved. So you gotta you gotta understand the time that this happens, because this is the transition period between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the beginning of the church. And Jesus has appeared to the disciples. He's appeared to a lot of people, but there's confusion among them about, okay, what do we do now? And so Peter, the way he addressed it is, well, I don't, I mean, basically he says, I don't, I don't know about you. This is modern translation. I don't know about you, but I'm going fishing. And it's, and, and Peter being the leader I mean, there are people just were natural-born leaders, that what they do, others are going to do. Then the rest of the disciples said, we're going with you, or the ones that were originally fishermen. So what do they do? They go back, and they fish all night, and they catch nothing. They're not productive until they see Jesus on the shore, tells them to drop their nets. They have this tremendous catch. They don't realize it's Jesus at first. But after the tremendous catch, it kind of clicks in their mind. Oh, yeah, we've seen this movie before. This must. And so, you know, Peter, being the impetuous one, dives into the water and heads to the beach where Jesus has fixed breakfast for them. So this is a she uses this as a way of setting up this conversation about what kind of questions and especially when you think about the confusion that the early disciples had between the period of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the beginning of the church. So I thought that was a, a, an interesting way to put it. So um, one, one question I encounter regularly, she says these days, is why the local church matters. I think this is the wrong question because she, she, she writes here, that if we're asking the question, if, if the temptation is to define the church, um, in defining church is to instead articulate its ends. In other words, we defined the um, value of the church by talking about what the church does. And I'm as guilty as anybody of that. I'm I mean, guilty. I'm, I'm interested that she, that she says that's the wrong question, because as a Sunday school teacher, I teach a teenage class, and I've got just a, hand, just a small handful of students, and I want more students, and I want people to come to Sunday school for crying out loud. Get out of bed and come to Sunday school for crying out loud. Yeah. I mean, Sunday school is where the catechism really happens, where the discipleship happens, you know, in, in, in my church. So I want people to come, and they don't come. And so then I ask myself, well, why are you not coming? And that's that's exactly the same question she's asking. Why should they come? 
right? right. Why right. church? Right. And I'm like, well, here's the reason. Da, 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 yeah. da, da, da. Yeah. The church does this for people. The church does this for you. The church does this. Yes. It's well, a very consumerist approach to church. And that's exactly what she says. Mm-hmm. The next highlighted paragraph says, if it functions in a marketplace of sorts, then the church, therefore, must market itself as something people might want. Once it does this, it becomes very difficult to imagine the church or any religion as something other than an outcome producing good that people might choose. It also becomes very difficult for religious leaders not to behave as if they were marketing these outcomes to individuals. Perhaps the church is full of more moral people than other clubs. Perhaps it has better music. Perhaps it has very young, hip leaders. But what happens when the church is not more moral, more entertaining, or more attractive? What happens when it exhibits deep sinfulness and outdated forms of worship and people grow tired of one another? Other, I know what happens. Yeah. I can tell you what happens. Oh, yeah, people leave the people church. People leave the and, church and they stop going to church. Right. Yeah. Here, here's the here's the 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 nail though. Mm-hmm. Other better options are often available to individuals if what they are looking for is good company or entertainment. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I could find ch- that on the lake. The church can't compete if what they're competing for is to be the best entertainers or the most moral people in the room. Church is not about the most moral people in the room. It's about people who recognize their sinfulness are humbled by it humble themselves before God and depend on the sacrifice of Christ to cover their sin. And so we we muddy that if we suggest that the church is more moral in some sense than other people. Because and I've always had a problem with that. Mm. You know, is the church a model of of moral behavior or is it a hospital where we triage people because of the stupid decisions that they make and the immorality that they engage in oh you're talking about the hippies again aren't you no (laughs) why did i know that was coming all right she goes she goes on she says sometimes we're talking about what churches do to try to um uh, make their usefulness known to the community to define themselves yep and we've already talked about the fact, well, you, if, if we're not more, more, more moral uh, than what you find outside, and, and here's the thing, should we be, let me stop right there for a second, because I don't want people to think that I'm giving a pass to immorality. I'm not. Um, morality is something that we should embrace because we've been born again, and we should embrace it not because we're trying to impress God, but because we love God and we're responding to his sacrifice on the cross by honoring him with our lives. We want to be obedient. We become, uh, you know, we, we the desire is to serve and to honor Christ. So I want to see some difference in divorce rates from the, between the church Absolutely. and the world. You know, Absolutely. I want to see some difference in sexual immorality. Because we we should look at those things in a different light, yeah. uh, fueled by the Spirit, and have our understanding by come from the Word of God, not from the culture. But that definitely doesn't so, mean we look down our noses at the people behind us and say, "If you were just more like us, that would be so good." That, see, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. It's a trap. If you make morality the standard, then you have to be morally perfect. Hmm. If you're telling the world <laughs> that morality is what makes us different from the world, hmm. because they immediately go, uh-uh, I know this preacher, I know that preacher, I know this deacon, I know that deacon, I know this church member, I know that church. Yeah, we're we're still sinners, <laughs> but we're, we're forgiven and we're motivated 
to always be in the process of sanctification, that is becoming more like Christ every day because of our desire to please him. And that's why so. we put in our family creed, we didn't we didn't put we never sin. We put we hate all sin, especially our own, right, right. and we confess it quickly to God and to another person. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, sometimes churches attempt to demonstrate how they matter by adding something good to a community or addressing a problem. Definitely. Soup now that's kitchen. good. Yeah, that's, that's a good. It really it's a. Is. There's nothing that that is something that the church should do. The problem here is not that volunteer service is bad. It is, of course, a true fruit of the gospel. For sure. Yeah. It is something that we're going to do if we're changed by the gospel. The problem is that if the goal of the church is seen to be social transformation, then volunteering for United Way would be just as effective. That's exactly right. United Way does moral things. They serve the community. There's plenty of people out there serving the community that don't know a thing about God and don't have and don't give any consideration to who Jesus is. You can serve apart from the church. The church should serve, but it doesn't mean that the goal of the church is service or transformation of society alone. Because if that is the goal, like like they're saying, there are other other things happening. Mm-hmm. Serving the local community and addressing issues of injustice is great and important. But one doesn't need Jesus in order to do that. If success, so then she goes on and says, if success is measured by growth, the church is doing quite poorly. Because then she goes into how young people are leaving the church, how the church is. You know, people talk about the nuns, they don't have any religion. We don't ever talk about it as much as we should the duns. Now, the duns are people who have been to church and they're done because what they found was not what they sought, which was knowledge of God through Jesus Christ and genuine people who are responding authentically about their lives, you know, living living their lives under the gospel with humility. I heard John Stone Street and Maria Bear on last week's Stone Street or on last week's breakpoint saying that for every one millennial who converts to Christianity, three deconvert right now. That's the numbers as it stands right now within the millennials. Yeah. yeah. One well, coming in, three, three going, going out. out. Yeah, that's that's uh, kind of like Social Security. And, <laughs> and both of them, I mean... <laughs> We're going to hit an insolvency date sometime. That, exactly. <laughs> okay. So if, if, if neither the church nor its leaders are the best at any of the things that they do, it might seem the church is seldom required. It's redundant. If it's simply another organization that does good things in the community, then why have it? As long as there's somebody who's making movies that are better than Christian movies, ain't nobody going to be watching Christian movies. It's kind of well, like not you were talking about yesterday. Right, yeah. right. I mean, yeah, right. so it, it, you're right. So what God called for, however, was not a moral or powerful people, but a peculiar one. This is this is good stuff. I want to remind people that this is Christianity today. Okay? It is. Because this because is not people's caricature of Christianity it, it today. It is not. I, they have well, some well-thought-out pieces yes, like this. And, yes, And whether this person is conservative, I mean, this lady lives in Massachusetts, and she has some big Alsatian-type dog, you know, which is enough to undermine anybody's credibility. <laughs> <laughs> but but the fact is well, that she she's a thoughtful person, you know, and, and whether you agree with her politics or whether you agree with all of her, you know, theology, listen for crying out loud. That's well, why we read these pieces. Well, this <laughs> uh, we've got to unpack what it is about the dog that makes her liberal. But anyway, uh, now it is true that part of the church's peculiarity should exhibit itself in certain morality. 
See, this is she's she's right on here. She understands the pitfalls of what she's saying and what people are going to say back to her. So she's saying, she's clarifying as she goes. I'm not telling you you can just go out and live any way you want to. That's antinomianism is not what I'm at here. Um, but she says, um, okay, wait a minute. What makes the church peculiar is its knowledge of itself as called by God to be his representative on the earth, to be marked by unwieldy and inconvenient practices like forgiveness, hospitality, humility, and repentance. It is marked in such a way by the common gathering in baptism and communion, remembering the Lord's death and proclaiming it until he comes. A peculiar church is one that realizes that its existence is a witness to another world, where the ascension is not a sorrow alone, but an invitation to live in a new moment when the Son is indeed seated at the right hand of the Father. That's really, oh, really good. Gosh. That's, I mean, that says that our worship is regulated. That's a regulated principle of worship there, is it not? It is. I almost didn't read this. Huh. Wow. Uh, because I, I, I just thought to myself, you was know, it it's a big of, was article. Was it because of her dog? I, it, the, the dog did play into it. No, it's actually, but, I, I, just to be clear, so I don't malign the woman, she has a Nova Scotian duck tulling retriever, whatever that is. Sounds alsatianist to me. Well, that's a, it's a retriever. It's just a... Is that better? It, well, if it, if it brings ducks out of the water, maybe she's a duck hunter. That would make her conservative. I mean, you got a duck retrieving dog... That's not a progressive value. She loves coffee. So, that can't be bad. Maybe she's been on Duck Dynasty. I mean, she could have been a Duck Dynasty person, for all we know. <laughs> but I'm just, Duck Dynasty I'm just saying, would never write a paragraph like that last one. That, right that's there. what I'm, I'm saying. saying. When I read that paragraph, yeah. I thought, yes. Yes. The church has to distinguish itself by the fact that we are learning about and pointing to eternity. Okay? That and nobody else can do that. No, nobody. That's it. United That's Way the can't unique, do that. They have no 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 ability. Nor do they have the desire. Right. But even if they did, they couldn't do it. Only the church has this. And truth. that's why Christ commanded us to do church. I mean, it's the right. only. That's what we do have. And maybe I'm still talking in market terms of you know what we can do that no one else can do. But I mean, Christ called us into community with each other because He knows that there's a Christian character that can only be formed through Christian community. Right. Right. And it's and, and it's about the community. It's not just about, you know, oh, what church can do for me in terms of making me the type of person that I want to be. It is about the church, and it's about God. It's not about us. That's the whole thing. She's like, that. Well, that's how she started. We ask questions about theology when and in human terms. Like, well, church is about what it can do for us. No, it's about what God is doing in the world. Yes, that's well said. And here's here's a... I love this statement. It, it, uh, it, it just says, it's not that spiritual needs are the only needs people have. It's that spiritual needs are the only ones that the church can meet, uh, that only the church can meet. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I mean, that's sp- spiritual. All these material needs, all these other things, other people can do. It's not you, less than that. Church is not less than that. Right. It is that, but it's way more it's than way that. It's way more because yeah. it deals with the person, yep. the, their character. Uh, their sense of lostness and aloneness. And, and, and the person that's talking about this is a missionary to Japan who says that, you know, Japan's not in a post-Christian stage. Japan is a, in a never-Christian stage. Mm-hmm. It was never Christian. Mm-hmm. And the people are materialistic. They're, uh, they, they base everything on 
their ability to obtain things for themselves, and they're isolated, they're alone. They're, I mean, she said it's just a really sad thing to mm-hmm. be surrounded by material possessions, and you can understand why Solomon said, you know, I've done all this. Everything that you can gain under the sun, I've gained, and there is no value. There's nothing that stays with you or that makes a difference in your life. So the church's reality claim does not deny that the challenges of the world are pressing, that evil is real, or that it is gaining ground. It is not withdrawn or ignorant or politically uninvolved. I think it's so important that people hear that. It's not any of those things. But it says that the Lord is king while the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. Psalm 21.1. I'm telling you, this has really helped me because... That that's absolutely true. We we're we're aware of the political environment, and we engage in it according to the salt and light call that we are. Uh, the the fact that we're salt and light according to Matthew, but we at this at the same time that we're doing that, we're not going to be drawn into the rage of the nations because God is the King. He's the Lord, even as the nations rage. And that keeps us out of despair. I mean, a lot of Christians, they, they're looking around today, and they're just in despair about the state of the world. They're asking the question, you know, the church is not making a difference. Mm-hmm. We're, we're losing on every front. Mm-hmm. Look at the evil as it rises. Look at what's happening with China. Look at what hap- what's happening with Iran. Look at what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. And, yes, the nations rage, but the Lord, he is king as the nations rage. And so we observe it, we understand it, but as part of the church, we understand the broader picture that God is sovereign, in control, and that as these things happen, we should not be in despair about them. I just I just think that's Yeah, it's it's very thought-provoking. It's it I guess I want to tie it back to something you said yesterday about, you know, we are salt and light. It's not that we aspire to be or we do our best to become, you know, it's we are that's an identity statement, and Christians do what Christians do, I mean, by by their very nature, like a pickle's a pickle, you know? A pickle ain't going to carrot. A pickle's going to pickle, and, uh, and, and, and we go to church. Like, we do Christian life together in community, and that's just how it works. Right. That's the way God set up the world. This is—I'm this is, um, I'm, going to read two more things, and we'll wrap it up. I'm often asked if I'm asking too much by insisting that the church's worship— form people in this rigorous way. Now, she goes on, you have to read this whole thing, but she goes on to talk about that the church is the forming of a people. Mm-hmm. It's not the, it is not the influence of individuals as much as it is the formation of a people. God didn't give and the Ten Commandments to Israel to form individuals. He right. said, this is going to be them, my people. This is, we're, we're part of a community. That's how church gets done. Mm-hmm. And Peter, you know, he talks about the living stones, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, those are individuals, but they are, they are important in the sense that they form the foundation, the community. Exactly. They're built on this the foundation. This is Stonehenge. Right. Yep. Yes, that's mm-hmm. boy. That's that was good. Anyway, I'm often. Uh, 
but it seems to me that this kind of demand is the only thing that ultimately makes Christianity believable. If it's true, it's worth betting your life on. If it is not, you're better off choosing something else. Mm -hmm. When the church becomes preoccupied with defending itself to the world, it eventually becomes incoherent. The only way to be a church is to speak the peculiar language of peace, of forgiveness, of repentance, and resurrection. When we do not do our jobs, the church becomes understandable to the world, but it loses its mission when it becomes understandable, totally understandable to the world. So uh, she wraps up the conversation about, you know, she started talking about the fish and the, and the disciples and, and what they did. So let me read this last paragraph. The disciples at the Sea of Tiberias had finished a long night of fishing. They had caught nothing. Jesus met them, though they didn't recognize him at first. Cast your nets on the other side, he said. They did and received an abundance of fish. Jesus had made a fire at the shore, and he fed them breakfast, John 21, 1 through 14. In this moment, what mattered was not how, not the how of the resurrection or the why of their grief or the what next of their situation. What matters was being fed on and by Christ as his friends. You know, I, I want to I have just one coherent thought like that before I die, and I'll be happy man. But that is, that, that is a, I, I resonate with that so much because we are confused about what is the church, and I really believe this is the answer, that while the nations rage, God, he is the Lord. Um, I wanted to jump into a story here that the Daily Wire has today, and it's about Chris Ray's interview with Brett Baer yesterday on Fox News. Now, before we we get into what the part of this that I wanted to highlight, um, Brett Baer did ask him about, because there was a, a, a question that was sent in by somebody that was watching the, the show, that, you know, okay, th- this is... Um, for uh, for Christopher Ray, were there FBI agents undercover uh, that were influencing actions on January 6th? Because there there are a lot of people that believe that there were FBI agents that were undercover that pushed the crowd in a particular direction. Um, uh, Christopher Ray wouldn't answer that. Uh, he he said he's not going to talk about operations where the FBI may or may not have been involved in a in incognito. Now, you you have to kind of halfway understand that, right? I mean, if if the FBI is going to talk about clandestine efforts that they had in terms of undercover agents and what their function was, then that's going to undermine the agency's ability to do that. And while we may not like the fact that the FBI may have had undercover agents involved on January 6th, we certainly don't want to undermine their ability overall to have undercover agents in other situations. Now, we can debate about whether revealing what happened on January 6th would undermine the agency's ability, but their standard answer when you talk about clandestine or undercover work is always going to be, we're not going to talk about that. Now, I look... Do I believe that there were FBI agents that were undercover on January 6th that were uh, part of the crowd? Yes, I believe that. Do I believe that they intentionally pushed the crowd? I mean, a, a lot of people will say it was those FBI agents that pushed the crowd, that opened the barriers, that that 
facilitated this whole thing because the government wanted to step in. They wanted to uh, prosecute people who were Trump supporters, and and they wanted to create this chaos. Um, I I don't believe that. Now, I know people do believe it. I, I hope people can agree to disagree. Do I believe the FBI would do such a thing? Yes, I do. I don't think it's beyond them. I don't think anything is beyond the FBI. Um, but I, I don't believe in this case that they were facilitators of what happened on January 6th. I think there were bad actors on January 6th. I think there were innocent people on January 6th. I think there were people that simply went down to the Capitol um, but because there was a group of people moving to the Capitol and they were concerned about the certification of the election. But I don't think they ever meant to be involved in an insurrection or take over the government. So, And some of those people are, are being prosecuted by the government. I think the government has gone too far in its prosecution of people who were engaged in the protest on January 6th. Um, and, you know, so, um, I, I mean, I don't want you to think that I'm just going along and whatever the FBI wants to do. I'm not. Because this next segment, is this is what I want to put the emphasis on. Brett Baer came back, and, um, and, and Chris Ray made this statement about the FBI. He said, I hear these claims of politicalization, but I can tell you that the FBI is and is going to stay independent. And that means following the facts wherever they lead, no matter who likes it. And I add that last part because I, what I've found in today's world is that far too many people use as their standard for whether they think something was fair or objective, whether it's an FBI investigation or the Supreme Court decision or even an election, or what is whether they like the result and whether their side won or lost. But that's not independence and, obje and objectivity work. We're not on either side. The FBI is on the American people's side and on, on the Constitution's side. Now, that's a pretty strong statement made by Chris Ray. It, it, the problem is that the vast majority of people who heard it don't believe it. Yeah, I was going to say it would be nice if it was true. Yeah, that, well, that, that's my point is that most people don't believe that. And I thought the way that Brett Baer followed up, was particularly good because his his next statement was about Mark Mark Hawk, the Pennsylvania pro-life activist who was arrested at his home in front of his family. Arrested is so, hardly the right word. No, I, I, he went on to say because I'm going to play this. I, I want you to hear this exchange, um, because I I think that it speaks as to why so many people have lost trust in the FBI. Here we go. All right, so let's talk about by the book. Mark Houck, Pennsylvania pro-life activist, arrested at his home in front of his family for an alleged violation of the Freedom of Access of Clinics Act, alleged incident which he was protesting in front of an abortion clinic. He was recently acquitted of all charges at trial. The show of force for that arrest, that decision to use that force, was that by the book? Those decisions are made as they should be by the commanders on the ground in the field office who have the expertise about when to conduct operations safely and securely for the safety of everybody involved. And to my knowledge, those processes were all followed in this case. Yeah, I mean, historically, FBI protocol is that a defendant has, if he has no criminal history, is not believed to be violent or pose a threat to public safety, that he or she is permitted to self-surrender rather than subject 
um, dynamic execution of an arrest warrant. Here's what I'm talking about is the dual system. You know, there's that for a pro-life activist, but not that for a Black Lives Matter protester who maybe torches a federal building um, over the summer. So that disparity, that dichotomy, is what sticks in people's mind. I understand that people have their opinions. Uh, all I can tell you is that we have one standard, one standard, uh, which is irrespective of ideology, of politics. In this country, it doesn't matter what you're upset about or who you're upset with. You don't get to express that upset with violence. And so we are agnostic as the ideology and focused on the violence. For even a white-collar arrest, there are situations where white-collar arrests have resulted uh, in shootings. So there's a whole lot of things that goes into the judgment about what is the way to conduct uh, arrests safely and securely that are made, I think, appropriately by the career agents on the ground who have the closest visibility to the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the FBI has a long history of conducting those operations with a far better track record of safety than a lot of other agencies, precisely because those people take it so seriously. Okay, that's a terrible answer. It's a terrible answer. Okay. <laughs> a, a much better answer would have been, you know, we have a protocol, and we we we, we whiffed on that one. Well, it 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 didn't answer the question. He completely ignored the question. Now, not in the same way that Shogun, in front of uh, Senator Hawley, uh, refused to answer the question. He did answer the question, but he ignored the question as surely as she did. He just simply said a lot of words. I mean, look, the question was why, if, if protocol, established protocol of the FBI is a nonviolent first offender has the option to uh, surrender if they know that an arrest is coming or that if they're informed that they've got, they need to surrender, that they're given that option. So why show up at this man's house? Guns who, blazing. Who, who have who has no well, not guns blazing. I know, I know. That was a metaphor. They, I mean, they had showed up with this incredible show of force early in the morning with his family there. Why? Why that? And then why do you not do the same thing with people who torched a federal building and, and during the Black to Lives that is, Matter? Well, sometimes that's appropriate. Well, I'm not talking about sometimes. I'm talking about right. this time. Right. Well, and and the answer can't be that this is the judgment of the field officers. Well, it can be that, but then you have to say, well, was that judgment in this right. situation correct? Well, that's what I'm saying. You it it you can say that it's the judgment of the field officers, but then that calls the field officer's judgment into you account. You have to have a protocol for and evaluating that response by the judge, by the field commander. If you're the head of the FBI, That's you should your be job. able to. Yeah, you should yes. be able to answer. Well, yes. You should be able to answer that yes. question. He did not answer it. And that's the problem. I and think, that's why I think his don't. answer to it was, was we're satisfied. We're okay with what they did. They there. are. That, that was his answer. And that's terrible because the American people see that this is a disparity. It, and the reason they see it is because it is. This is not this is not people's opinion. See, that's what bugs me about the fact that people he said people have, have their, their opinions. opinions. Well, a jury actually rendered its yeah. judicial opinion. Right. And said Which the guy was, was not he was guilty not of what guilty. you went and arrested him, guns blazing. I'll stand by that. You know, well, they, he I, was not, not. I know they we didn't fire a shot, but they kicked his door in. They took the door off the hinges with their boot. I know. 
and traumatized That's, his children. Right. But let's be accurate. Okay. They used they they used very oppressive, very unnecessary show of force to take this man into custody when he would have just as easily have surrendered. Uh, and that's the the American people can look at that and see that this is not a this is not opinion, this is fact. Right. See, it's the same. Let's go back right. to Josh Hawley and Shogun here with the uh, the uh, archives. It's not somebody's opinion. She locked her Twitter account. She said, "My Twitter account is this." Josh Hawley showed that it was that. And you know she can well what what can she say? Well, you can, you can have your opinion. <laughs> no, it's it is it is a it's either a fact or it's false. And in the case, in both of these cases, we have facts that are not being responded to by the witness. One of them wants to be the head of the archives. The other is currently the head of the FBI. And I'm deeply troubled by both of them. I don't like, um, I guess it's just easy for me to dislike politicians because these are the ones that get the headlines. And I don't know, I'm sure there are good politicians out there. Uh, I know there are actually. I've met some of them. I'm actually considering being one. I I, I think I, my my uh, city councilman from Easley that represents me in my precinct actually just passed away unfortunately in the last month. May God rest his soul, Terry Moore. And uh, he was down at MUSC and had complications from heart this and that. Um. So I don't know. Uh. Maybe you you can tell me if I should run for city council as a launch pad to to uh to to my future political career. Maybe that's one of the things that bothers me the most of all, is that politics is now viewed as a career. And I don't think it should be. And I think that th that the, the, just the culture of, and, and, I'll, and I'll say it, okay, I don't like the phrase, but it has its own meaning, and I'll say it, the deep state culture of viewing politics and government as a career um, is part of what creates this culture where people can go up there and shamefacedly, bald-facedly lie, do whatever crooked things they need to do in order to stay. I don't want to believe it's just about keeping their job because I'm sure they have some noble aspiration, but that's what it looks like. I'm just saying that from the street, it looks like people are trying to protect their own interests rather than, as Christopher Ray says, trying to do what's right for the American people. I think we could recognize that. If that were happening, I think we could recognize it. Okay, okay, okay. Here, here, here's the thing. I, I've been, uh, you're talking about term limits. I am talking about term limits. So, I, and, and at I've every been, single level, you know, I mean, just two terms for this. If you want to make politics a career, do it in 15 different positions. Yeah. Well, um, I've sort of gravitated over time toward the term limits argument. In other words, uh, the validity of getting term limits out there. Okay. Um, I, I wasn't for it. I, I, for most of my um, engagement in grassroots political activity, I haven't been in favor of term limits. Is that because of the value of experience, of longevity? Well, Did you, that's is that part kind of it. Of, was that the counterweight? That's part of it. Hmm. The other part, I mean, there's a, there's a part that, to me that says, no, we have a system, and that system says the people get to decide what they want in government. The government doesn't pass a law that tells them what they want. We get to decide what we want. And a term limit says you may want this person to serve another term. The majority of people in this person's district may want them to serve another term. Yeah. But we're going to tell you 
that you cannot have them serve another term. That is a guiding light for you because you've said the same thing about the crazies in the House of Representatives. If the people in that district want the crazy to represent them, they should be allowed to have the crazy to, unless they do well, something illegal or that's beyond the but, pale. Well, but, and here's the other thing. Mm-hmm. What's crazy? I mean, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe, you know, the people who, uh, and, and I'm, I'm actually going to, I've stopped using, I'm trying to stop use that fra- using that phrase because it, it's disrespectful to people that I disagree with. Huh. Um, I, I because they can just as easily turn around and look at me and say, "You're the one that's crazy here." That's crazy in itself, though, that you're saying that because there has to be some standard by which you judge crazy. There needs to be a standard by which we evaluate ideas. Uh huh. But there should not be a standard where we judge people to be either, and we use the term crazy to do so. All right. Um, Their ideas are crazy. Well, no, no, no. And I don't even want them. Look, I want my position to win the day because it's grounded in logic and, and founded in the truth. Okay. In other words, the truth is what I'm trying to communicate. And I think if, if we feel like our argument is weak, then we become the you know the people who yell crazy first, uh-huh. and I I don't want to be that guy. So in terms of term limits, let me ask you. Let me port that same idea that you use that you know our system is that people should be allowed to make their own choices and then live with the results of those choices. What about a TikTok ban for all U.S. citizens? Should we should the, should the government well, be different. able to? Is it different? Sure. I mean, I mean it, it, obviously, you know, Biden has now banned TikTok off of government computers that he's following in a long line of governments that are doing that for obvious national security reasons. But the House of Representatives, the Affairs, Ways and uh, Something, Means and Affairs Committee, Something Affairs Committee. House Ways and Means. I don't think it's Ways and Means. It's the, it's the Affairs one. But anyway, they're, they're okay. actually piloting a piece of legislation right now and asking if Biden will sign it to ban TikTok off of all U.S. citizens' devices. TikTok is, an, is a spy device that's used by an adversary that wants to destroy the country. I mean, tick, TikTok is a that that's not you know making the decision about whether we should should I have the right to engage in behavior that undermines the United States. So there's national um, security concern that trumps the individual liberty concern there. Well, you're 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 talking about individual liberty to participate in something that is siphoning information that hurts everybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's a that to me that's an overriding factor. Uh, but I'm just saying, the the people, Marjorie Green, her, um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Green, her principles, her approach to government, her moral background, which is uh, to many questionable, all of that is out there in the public arena, and she runs for office with every bit of that known. Her opponents are free to point those things out. If the people in that district want to ignore them or they they choose to put her back in office, then that's on them. That's the way a constitutional republic works. And if they do that over and over and over for years? Well, I'm just saying uh that we either believe in a system where we directly, where we elect our representatives or we don't. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. So, what's the tension on the rope there for term limits? Well, I, I think the power of incumbency. Uh, how much time we got? We're almost out of time. Oh my goodness, we're almost out of time. I, I'm supposed what to is be it keeping about, track I of know. this thing. What is it? A minute? Yeah. Less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the power of incumbency. 
the the thing that 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 is compelling to me, yeah, is that we can take this up again tomorrow. The thing that's compelling to me is that it's been demonstrated that without term limits, people have the ability to stay in office so long that the the siren call of corruption becomes unavoidable. And that's compelling to me because that that affects the quality of government and causes people to lose faith in the system. So, all right, that's all the time we got for today. But we'll be back tomorrow at 7 o'clock with more Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. Have a great day and check out the podcast.